Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Clear and Convincing, the show that looks at criminal cases from the perspective of the courts, not the court of public opinion. We're Lisa O'Brien, podcasting from New Orleans, Louisiana, and Michael Carnahan from Little Rock, Arkansas. On Friday, November 30th, President George H.W. Bush passed away at the age of 94. His body was flown to Washington, D.C. to lie in state at the Capitol Rotunda, accompanied by his service dog, Sully. A state funeral will be held at the National Cathedral on Wednesday, followed by a memorial in Houston, Texas, on Thursday. His body will then be taken on his special Union Pacific train, 4141, which was dedicated to him near his library in 2005, to the Bush Library in College Station, Texas, where there will be a private interment. In addition to his long career in public service, Mr. Bush was devoted to his family. He was preceding death by his wife of 73 years, Barbara Pierce Bush, and a daughter, Pauline Robin Bush. He survived by four sons and a daughter, 17 grandchildren, and eight great-grandchildren. Mr. Bush was the last combat veteran to serve at the White House. He will be remembered for his humility, his sense of duty, his integrity, and his sense of humor. Rest in peace, Mr. President. <sighs> All right, Michael. I need a break. <laughs> <laughs> that was uh, I, a... I wrote that with no problem, but I didn't read it out loud. Right. I mean, and we were talking before we came on the air. Uh, Bush uh, 41, you know... We talked about we kind of went back and forth a little bit on forty three, but really, Bush forty one and Clinton will be the guaranteed, you know, last two that you see this just from both sides. Uh, emotion and, and Jimmy Carter, President Carter uh, as yeah. well. Obviously, Carter as well, but. In timeline form, those will be the last two that you actually see. I mean, like you pointed out, you got made a good point saying that uh, 43 is uh, going to, you know, he was a little bit polarizing in his second term. But, you know, really, especially, I, you know. I don't know that it's necessarily. Like yeah, I, I, I don't think that it's necessary that. 
George W. Bush was not necessarily polarizing. It's that something about the political landscape changed. People's attitudes uh-huh. about politics changed so that if you did not agree with someone, you could not work with them or respect them. Mm-hmm. And that happened right. with President Bush. I was a Democrat up until Nancy Pelosi blamed the failure of the banks and mortgage companies on President Bush when in, in reality the conditions that led to the failure were put in place by deregulation done by the Democrats under President Clinton. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, we were talking, you you mentioned that, you know, how polarizing politics in America today is. And that was one of the great things about doing the American Idiot Show, which we actually did the uh, one-year anniversary of here last week. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that was one of the great things about it. We may have had, you know, our, our differences politically, but we could separate. And that's the thing I think we're missing in America today. Back in, Definitely. you know, President Bush and President Clinton and even, you know, in a, to a certain extent in W's terms, you could really separate the politics from the human being. And you could, you know, hey, I don't agree with them on certain levels, but I can respect the person. You don't get that now. Correct. Especially, you know, back in, you know, the 60s, 70s, 80s. And even in the 90s, you still respected the office, maybe not the person occupying the office. I don't even think – for some people, I don't even think they respect the office anymore. No, they don't, unless their person is in the office, and then Mm -hmm. it's due the utmost respect. But if they don't like the person in the office, it's not due any respect. But I I think one of the things that – I'm sorry, go ahead. This is a problem, you know, definitely I don't want people to think that, you know, I'm only saying this is a problem as far as Trump goes. This was a problem when President Obama was president. People didn't respect the office of the president whenever President Obama was in office even. They disrespected the man and the human being, which is something I never understood. Mm -hmm. You know, I didn't agree with them politically, but I still believe that Barack Obama is an extraordinary human being who deserves a ton of respect. Right. And I've pointed this out to other people. I read it somewhere. Um, Disrespecting a president and wanting him to fail and trying to ensure that he does fail is like getting on a plane and hoping the pilot crashes it. Absolutely. And I mean – I've seen it bandied about on uh, Facebook last week, uh, or excuse me, since uh, the news of President Bush 41's uh, passing is the letter that he left President Clinton. What an amazing Mm -hmm. human being to to go through probably the worst day in your career, giving up the presidency, and after one term and he still has enough respect for the office and enough respect for his country that he does something like that. You just Correct. don't see that. Today. That was, that was an amazing thing that he did. And I had heard it about it originally. 
because that was when I was a Democrat and still vote, you know, and I voted for Clinton. But, um, yeah, that was, you know, that wasn't, uh, I, I think, as I recall, Jimmy Carter left something similar for President Reagan when President Reagan came in office. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, you know, that's, that's the generation that they were from. Well, unless I'm mistaken as well, and I want to say I read this in his book, I think W may have done the same thing for President Obama. I could be wrong, but I, I believe think W so. may have done something for Obama as well, which we don't know I, yet, or I haven't heard anything yet whether uh, President Obama did anything for Trump when he uh, was inaugurated, but it's possible. He may, he, he very well may have. I mean, he, you know, I, not agreeing with him ideologically, he still seems like he and Michelle both are very, you know, classy, uh, classy people. They try mm-hmm. to be kind. They try to do the right thing. And that's the other thing, too. People can't see that even if you don't agree with someone ideologically, you have to respect that they are doing what they believe to be right. And best. And that was the thing about President Bush. Even people who didn't agree with him could still see that in every decision he made, he was careful, considerate, and he did what he thought was right. Uh, One of his grandsons said um, he wasn't just a great man. He was a good man. Absolutely. I mean, and that's the thing, you know, we talk about we talk about these things. We talk about, you know, all these uh, things about President Bush. And this is the time when you uh, when this is the time for talking about those type of things, you know, he'll be a man that, you know, and an American, not just a president, but he'll be an American that's sorely missed. Mm hmm. Correct. So yes, he well, is. Uh, go ahead. Uh, he's he is going to be missed, and and the the happy thing is that he's back with he's with Barbara and he's with Robin, and, and he'll be waiting right. for everyone else when the time when their time comes. I think everybody. And I think that's what realized. they're. Yeah, I think everybody. I knew when. Barbara went that it wasn't going to be much longer for because I believe Correct. it was actually surprising that Barbara went first. Well, I think both of them had 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 been in declining health for a few years, and um, I know he had some problems um, not long after she passed away with pneumonia, and then he had an infection and it, it, be, it went septic. So I mean he was their health was declining. So he he was but I think the I think losing her because they were each other's rock. They were the perfect partnership. And without right. her he he just could not you know, he could not rally and and go on. So and again, his health is, he was in poor health, so he's not, you know, he's not suffering and he's not in pain and, um, you know, he's he's restored to 
top form, which I think for someone as active as he was in the in the documentary Forty One, which is on HBO, one of the things he talked about is he was he was an athlete, and he said now I'm so old, and people don't pick me anymore, and I can't do these things anymore, but I can drive my boat. Right. And that was yeah, you know that he was an outdoorsman. Yeah. Both Bushes, I believe, were known athletes as far as that goes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But definitely right. one of the crazier situations going, you know, definitely going to be sorely missed. Yes. Uh, as I said, rest in peace, Mr. President. All right, we ready to move? Yes, ma'am. We are ready to go ahead and go on into our case tonight. All righty. Thank you, everyone, for joining us for Episode 31, State of Texas versus Linda Cardi. Tonight, we'll be discussing the case against Cardi, who was tried and convicted in 2002 for capital mur- murder arising from the kidnapping of Joanna Rodriguez and her son, Ray, which led to Joanna's death. A jury sentenced Cardi to death in February 2002. Her conviction and sentence were affirmed on direct appeal. In 2004, new attorneys who were retained by the British organization Reprieve attempted to expand Cardi's post-conviction claims in Texas state court. They went on unsuccessfully to raise those claims in federal court. The U.S. Supreme Court has twice denied review of Cardi's claims. We'll discuss the evidence against Cardi, her post-conviction claims, and the status of her appeals. As always, this is a live show. And calls are welcome. Our phone number is 347-989-1171. All right. Did you hear that? Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. I did hear you. Okay. I've been covering the mic when I have to cough. Because it's (laughs) hanging on. Hey, it happens. You know, uh, I've heard somebody say once, and I forget who I can attribute it to, but they said nothing can go wrong live. So, you know, we'll just rush past mm-hmm. it. That was planned. <laughs> All right. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I was reading your description, and unfortunately I really did want to watch this documentary that you had told me to watch over the weekend. But, uh, you know, I had moved over the weekend, so I didn't really have time. But I, I was reading the description rather quickly about what happened and this is one of the craziest things I think I've ever seen in my life as far as what happened but let's go ahead and break this thing down you know as we do piece by piece and let's start out with uh, Linda what do we know about Linda? Linda was born in St. Kitts which is a British Dominion. It was. It was at the time she was born in 1958. It was a British part of the British Commonwealth. Um, so that made that made her a British citizen. She was born to a relatively well-to-do family, although she's given conflicting statements about her uh, life in St. Kitts. In some, she said they went to the best schools. They had money. Um, oh, yeah. She was spoiled. Uh, and then in, the uh, 
Oh, I apologize. <laughs> And and then in floor. and then in other statements, she said it was a third world country and conditions were horrible. And so, um, St. Kitts was also during her late adolescence, early adulthood, was trying to gain independence from Britain. So uh, there probably was some political turmoil, although. According to some sources, uh, Cardi's family was very loyal, and Cardi even once sang for Prince Charles, the Prince of Wales. Um, Oh, wow. In the late 1970s, Cardi became pregnant out of wedlock, which for her well-to-do Catholic family was a bit of a stigma. And her daughter was born in 1979. Mm-hmm. In 1982, Cardi relocated to Houston, Texas with her daughter and some members of her family. Okay. So, like, they kind of traveled as, like, a, I don't want to say a cult, but, like, what do they call that, a compound? <laughs> like, they all traveled together? And no, no, no. Well, no, no. It was just, yeah, I think it was just, you know, Linda wanted to leave St. Kitts with her daughter uh-huh. Um, she had been a teacher, and apparently when she got pregnant out of wedlock, she lost her job, and so she was having probably having some difficulty socially and economically, and so she wanted to go somewhere else. And I believe her mother and one of her sisters uh, decided to come with her, and it was probably more being remaining part of the family unit. But she has family that remained on St. Kitts. She had a misdemeanor charge for theft in Houston in 1983. And then it seems like she got involved in drug culture, shady things, because in 1992, she went to a car rental business in August, said she was an FBI agent, and rented a vehicle. The rental company eventually swore out a criminal complaint in May of 1993 because the car had not been paid for and the car had not been returned. FBI came became involved because Cardi represented herself as an FBI agent, and she was eventually arrested and charged with felony theft of the car. Mm-hmm. Um, this... The consequences of this would have resulted in probably some prison time in Texas and then deportation back to St. Kitts. So in order to avoid that, Cardi agreed to work with the DEA as an informant. Uh So they signed her up as an informant. Mm-hmm. And so she was supposed to go out And and she was involved in the I mean she wants to make it look like And make it sound like The DEA came to her And pressured her Because she was dema- dating a Jamaican Who unbeknownst to her Was a drug dealer That they wanted oh, Lord. Of course But the reality was she became an informant To get her own ass out of the crack Right 
Absolutely. That would have resulted in a prison term and deportation. That is 90% um, of people in that situation, it sounds like typically uh, typically that's how they're becoming. Right. And also, though, I mean, if you're not involved in the drug culture, the sure. DEA does not want you if you steal a car. Right. So she had to be on DEA radar. Um, I have read somewhere, and I can't attribute it, that when she became an informant, she used that to better her business prospects and take out her competition in the drug business. Yes. The woman is manipulative to like the nth degree, but uh, she's also very calculating and very, uh, you know, very good at seeing what she wants and getting it. Mm-hmm. So that's, within that's two years of signing on as an informant with DEA, Cardi was observed going into a house that was being surveilled because another informant had reported a major drug buy going mm-hmm. that was going to go down there. Cardi is observed pulling up, carrying a box inside, coming out with the box and getting in the car. So the surveillance people decide, the officers surveilling the location decide to follow her. When she realizes she's being followed, she does what, you know, everybody who's doing nothing wrong does, she gets into a high-speed chase. And at one point, she has to run over an officer who's trying to stop her car. When she eventually stops, because her way is completely blocked by police vehicles, um, they find 50 pounds of marijuana, $3,900, and two guns in the car. Holy crap, Kingpin. So, I'm gonna start calling, um, Linda Cardi, needless to say. <laughs> Wait, Bob, like Escobar? Yeah. Oh, no, El Chapo. No, not. Yeah, no. We can call her um, she's, El Chapo. Well, no, but, but she's not quite as smart as El Chapo because she gets caught fairly quickly. Okay. Okay. She doesn't really get away with it, and she thinks she's slick, but she's really not. So after that drug bust, which was a big violation of her terms of uh, post-conviction, not post-conviction, of um, deferred prosecution. Right. uh, They put her on probation for the car theft. And during that term of probation, and she and she's taken off the books by the DEA. I would so any like claims about her? Yeah, she. Any claims about her being a, a a DEA informant are fantasy, outright lie, uh-huh. wishful thinking, because she was deactivated within two years. Okay. Because now the marijuana charges were eventually dropped, 
I think that was in 1995. But, you know, she had already poisoned the well. Um, we'll get into it a little bit later, but one of the one of the officers that she worked at with at Houston PD said she wasn't a good informant. She was uncontrollable. She didn't give them notice of her buys. So she was going out and doing these things and not telling the DEA what she was doing. Of course, probably because she didn't want the DEA to know about those things. So, so basically she was the worst informant. <clears throat> it, it was a convenience. Yeah. When when it was somebody she wanted to take out, she would tell the DEA everything. She used the DEA as a uh, as a front almost for her actually doing this kind of stuff. And likely that is extremely likely. Yeah. And after okay. she was deactivated, she continued uh, providing information to DEA agent Charles Mathis. But she never provided him anything that he could work with. Okay. And, you know, we'll get into that a little bit later as well. Um, So at some point in around 99, she uh, begins a relationship with a gentleman by the name of Jose Corona. Uh And they uh, move in together. And they call each other husband and wife, and but they have a very turbulent relationship. And whenever Jose wants to leave her, she says she's pregnant. But then oh, wow. she won't let him go to the doctor with her, and she won't let him go to the hospitals with her. And then when he asks her about, you know, like having this baby, she tells him she had a miscarriage. Oh, Lord, of course. And that happened a few a few times over two and a half years. Oh, Finally, wow. a few in the, times? He bought it more than Yeah. Once? And one of the other things, too, is that she was saying she was working for the DEA, but he never saw her doing any work, and he never saw any money from her work. Okay. You know, when you're, when you're a confidential informant, you know they'll they'll give you a little bit of money to pay your bills, mm-hmm. and you know it, you're on you're on the books. Thick is what they call it. She was off the books. She wasn't getting any any money for anything, and she wasn't working. That was also a violation of the terms of her probation, and that was a problem. But unfortunately, probation in Texas did not violate her and send her to prison. They just let her keep coming in with a song and dance and saying, I'm looking, I'm looking, I'm looking, I'm going to get a job, you know, whatever. Right. Well, in the beginning of May, Jose Corona has had all he can take, can't stand no more, so he leaves her. And what does uh she tell him? Yeah, I gave you three guesses, and the first two don't count. Uh, Pregnant. Exactly. <laughs> Please tell me he didn't believe it this time. No, he he told her right off the bat. He said, I don't believe you. I don't love you. I'm gone. I'm out of here. Right. That's the, probably the smart decision to make here. 
Correct. <laughs> so uh, that was the. What happens? Do I know? That was the end of the relationship with Jose. Now, when did that occur? What what time frame? It was in the beginning of May, early May. Okay. I, they none, none of the um, none of the opinions or briefs cited any specific date. Just a few weeks before the uh, crime happened. Correct. It was within about okay. two weeks. Okay. Okay. So yeah, the beginning of May, late April. So here she is. She's lost her money, man, which, let's be honest, at least from what I'm picking up from what you're saying about her and Corona's relationship, that's the only reason why mm-hmm. she's with him. Um, she lost her money, man, so she has to go – I'm assuming she has to go uh, find some way to make some money or, you know – Put something out there, correct? Is that how this comes about? Well, that is what most normal people would do. But something tells me that Linda Cardi just ain't normal. Because what she does is she begins trying to figure out a way to get Jose back. And she decides the way to do that is to get a baby. Oh, my goodness, she is going this far. And it just so, did you not listen to the show description, my dear? <laughs> this is true, but good Lord, somebody needs to have this woman committed. Well, oh, should. buckle. No, 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 and that's the thing, too. I don't think this is mental illness. I think this is a personality disorder, and there's a difference. Okay. Mental illness can be treated, it can be uh-huh. managed, and if a person recognizes that mental illness, it can be quite successfully treated and managed. With okay. a personality disorder, first of all, most people with the personality disorders that involve these kinds of acts, like Jody Arias, Casey Anthony, uh-huh. Betty Broderick, they do okay. not have a problem. It is the rest so of the cut, world that has the problem. She's cut it from the same cloth, basically, as Casey, is what you're saying. Um, you know, I think she's. Uh, I think she's a little darker than Casey. I don't think she's as dumb as Casey. Um, okay. But like Jody and Casey and Betty, how can you tell when Linda Cardi's lying? Her lips are moving. And sound is coming out of her mouth. Okay. I understand now. I understand. So, well, as as we move on, on May 13th, the apartment lease where she and Jose were living, that lease is up at the end of May. So, Cardi has begun the process of moving out of the apartment. I suspect that she was going to live with her mom or her sister or maybe even her daughter. Um, and let's be honest, because the process certainly did not have the wherewithal to get a place on her own. Right. 
the process of moving her moving out is probably, you know, if she does have this personality disorder and she's obsessing over uh, Mr. Corona, you've got to assume the whole process of her moving out of the place where they lived and everything is probably causing her to boil over even more, I would think. Yes. And one of the things in the apartment complex across the, the, I guess, across the parking lot, across the way from Linda's apartment, there is a young couple, Ramundo Cabrera and his wife, Joanna Rodriguez. They are originally from Mexico, but they're in Houston. He works in construction and she Uh is pregnant. Okay. 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 Yeah, you're seeing it now. <laughs> mm-hmm. So Linda, apparently, she's not going to have a baby. She's not pregnant. So she needs a baby. And Joanna Rodriguez is Hispanic, just like Jose. So she decides she's going to get Joanna's baby. Wow. Yep. And on May 13th, she comes up with a plan. She decides to get drug dealers and thugs from her her street life to do a home invasion at Ramundo and Joanna's apartment to kidnap Joanna, and then Linda Cardi is going to cut her baby out. It, she recruits, yeah. Did she think she this starts thing recruiting. through? Uh, the, well, <laughs> yes and no. Because, <laughs> like, this is absolutely, like, logically, if you sit here, and I'm just sitting here listening to you talk about the plane, you can't do that. Cut the baby out? Like, no. It, well, it, it, the, the the story continues. It it gets better, Michael. Don't worry. Um, okay. She recruits a woman by the name of Josie Anderson. And Josie is very interested in particip- participating in this. Uh, on the streets, they call it a lick. And that's where you kick down the door, you go in. The targets are drug dealers drug people. So they ain't going to call the cops. You go in, you take their shit, and then if they see you on the street, they're probably going to shoot your ass. But they're not going to be calling the cops. Nobody's going to be looking for you. Except them, of course. Right. Um, so but, uh, yeah. So that's perceived to be a, low, a relatively low-risk a low-risk crime if you're talking about prosecution by the authority. Yeah, I was about to But say, a high risk crime because your your life is going to get an expiration date unless you leave that jurisdiction and go someplace else and never cross right. paths with the with the people again. And so right. but Josie's interested in this because Linda has told Josie that there's two hundred pounds of marijuana, that there's thousands of dollars in cash. And it's all theirs for the taking. All Linda wants is the lady because she's going to get her baby. 
So then Josie goes out and she knows some men who fit the bill. They're going to, they're going to be able to do the job. And they are Chris Robinson, Marvin Caston, Carlos, Carlos Williams, and Gerald Anderson. Now I meant to look up these nicknames. Uh, Somebody was called Junebug or Bug and Gerald Anderson was called Baby G. And these are drug dealers and thugs. They're street guys. They're gang guys. You know. And, of course, somehow by the time Chris Robinson got involved, it was like 900 pounds of marijuana. Right. Which seems like an awful lot. Yeah. You know, a, a person would say, that's like too much in an apartment. Yeah. That's kind of insane. I can imagine what this apartment smelled like, honestly. Yeah, exactly. That much weed. I had that much weed, the whole complex would be high. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, I, I, the the street guys aren't known for their logical, reasonable right. thought process. Yeah. So, and they don't understand too good to be true. Uh-huh. If it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. So they do a dry run on either the 13th or the 14th. Now, on the 14th, Joanna goes in labor and she delivers her son, Ray. So he was oh. born before okay. anything took place. Um, okay. But they, they do a dry run. And Linda decides that that is not going to, you know, that night is not good because there are too many lights on in the complex. Somebody's windows is open, and she gets a little spooked. Mm-hmm. So they all go their separate ways. And Marvin Caston decides this shit is not for me, and so he starts avoiding Linda. Uh huh. But she is, you know, she's desperate to do this. So she she keeps Chris Robinson interested, even though he's kind of, and he's thinking about going behind her back because she's brought them to the apartment complex, shown them the Target apartment, and then taken them into her former apartment and shown them the layout. Right. So he knows exactly where everything will be and where everybody will be. So he's thinking about going behind her and just doing the lick and getting the pot and the money and telling Linda to go F herself. Right. But he doesn't do it. And so on the 16th, on the night of the 15th, <clears throat> excuse me, um, a former neighbor of Linda's sees Linda in the parking lot of the apartment complex about 6.30, 7.30, <clears throat> and Linda calls her over, and she gets in the car, and they chat for a few minutes. And then Linda tells her that she's going to have a baby boy, and he's going to be born the next day. And she pats her stomach with both hands. Well, Florence looks at her, this lady, Florence Myers, and looks and says, she don't look pregnant. Yeah, I was about to say, I could think that, I could assume that and she should be shocked if she's about to have a baby. In the back seat of the car, there's a child, a baby car seat. Now, 
Linda has allegedly been pregnant and bought supplies and then miscarried. Now, while I haven't personally gone through it, everyone I do know who has gone through a miscarriage, they cannot bear to look at anything related to a baby. Right. For a very long time afterwards. And so anything that they've gotten for the baby goes away. And, I mean, I have a friend, her husband had to rush home while she was at the doctor's office. And he had to pack everything up and go put it in the attic so that she would not even see it. Um, Because just the thought of seeing it all when she got home was too much emotionally for her. So I can't imagine someone who's not really pregnant, who's suffered so many miscarriages, having a baby seat in their car. Right. That's just crazy. That that just, it doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't even come close to getting the ear right. Right. And, um... Linda told several people that she was pregnant. Um, she told a woman at a storage facility that she was pregnant. She came in, and she, in fact, she told the woman she was in labor at the time. And the woman said that didn't sound right because she didn't look like she was in labor. I mean, uh-huh. women in labor, you, you know, you know. I mean, they can try to hide it, but there are moments when they are unable to do so. And you know. <laughs> and I got to wonder, if you're in labor, what's your ass doing at a storage facility and not on your way to the hospital? You're absolutely But that's just me. <laughs> and then when she went in on the 15th, earlier in that day, to pick up some baby stuff, she told the woman that she'd had the baby. It was a boy. And he was home with his dad. So, um, and then also another thing that she did is that she went to a medical supply store and she bought scrub uniforms, name tags, um, surgical scissors or some type of scissors, um, They are alternately described as surgical scissors, which to me would say that they are capable of cutting human flesh. But they've also been described as blunt scissors, bandage scissors, which would not be capable. But what people don't understand when they get into this aspect of the case, they don't understand if Linda Cardi was buying the wrong tools for the job, That's on mm-hmm. her. It's not the right. state's fault that she bought the wrong tools for the job. Because she had told Chris Robinson, Marvin Caston, Carlos Williams, Gerald Anderson, Robinson's brother, Zebediah Coombs, and Josie Anderson, that she wanted uh, Joanna Rodriguez. She was going to cut the, the baby out, and it was going to be her baby because her husband had an affair with Joanna, and the baby was her husband's baby. <coughs> And so, I mean, this was, you know, she told a lot of people this stuff. 
She told some people she was pregnant, but then she told other people she needed Joanna because she needed that baby. And she was going to get that baby. And prior to May 16th, she likely did not realize that little Ray had already been born. And so her plan was to get Joanna and cut the baby out. If she bought the wrong tools for the job, again, that's on her. It's not on the state. It's not on Houston Police Department. It's not on the prosecutors. It's not on the judge. It's not even on her defense attorney. It's on her. Um, so right. at 1 a.m. on May 16th, and remember that at 6.37.30, sometime in there, on May 15th, Florence Myers sees Linda Cardi in a Pontiac Sunfire with a baby seat in the back, sitting in the parking lot of the apartment complex. Mm-hmm. At 1 a.m. on May 16th, Chris Robinson, Carlos, Carlos Williams, and Gerald Anderson kick down the door of the apartment with Ramundo and Joanna. Also in the apartment was Ramundo's cousin, Rigoberto Cardenas. Uh, the men rush in demanding money, demanding drugs. The uh, Ramundo, Rigoberto, and Joanna don't speak English well. Uh And the guys don't speak Spanish, but they know how to ask for drugs and they know how to ask for money. I think they did uh, mole and dinero or something like that. They searched the apartment. They ransack it. They beat Rigoberto and Ramundo. They tied them up. They put duct tape around Ramundo's head and leave him face down on his bed. They tie up Rigoberto, who was downstairs, and put him, they turn over a couch on top of him. And then they take Joanna and baby Ray out of the apartment. Linda Cardi takes Ray. Joanna is taken and put into the trunk of a vehicle being driven by Chris Robinson. Shortly after leaving the apartment complex, they stop at a storage facility or a parking lot, and they transfer Joanna from Robinson's vehicle to Linda Cardi's Pontiac Sunfire. Uh They then drive to... Uh, Zebediah Coombs and Chris Robinson's grandmother's house on Van Zandt Uh and park the car and Linda's holding the baby. They open the trunk of Linda's car. Linda orders somebody to tape up Joanna, tie her up. Uh, I think Carlos Williams ends up tying her up then Linda Cardi starts talking about killing her, Joanna. There is some right. discussion among the men that maybe the person that needs to die right now is Linda, but they don't go through with it. And so, <coughs> Zebediah Coombs, who's on an ankle monitor, <coughs> who's on an ankle monitor, because he's awaiting sentencing on a bank robbery charge he wants everybody gone he doesn't want this shit in front of his grandmother's house what does Linda Cardi do 
She ignores him. And she's like, I'm not driving my car with the body in the trunk. Oh, my Lord. So, uh, everybody ends up leaving and leaves Joanna in the trunk. And then they come back later and uh, Linda has gone and gotten a vehicle and come back. Chris Robinson gets there and he sees Linda with a with the trunk open and halfway in the trunk. And when he gets to the car, he sees Joanna in the trunk with a grocery bag over her head, plastic bag. And there's duct tape around her, her neck. Uh-huh. He freaks out. He tries to take the bag off. He can't get it off. He rips it open. But Joanna is dead. Right. Um, as, you know, as he testified and as he told the police, Linda was the only one there. Zebediah Coombs was back in the house asleep. Uh, you know, Marvin Caston wasn't there. Carlos Williams and Gerald Anderson were gone. He was gone. Linda was the only one there. Um, so, I, I, I mean, process of elimination, the guess is right. Linda's the person who killed Joanna. Right. Um, and <clears throat> Chris Robinson, for some reason, I don't know, <laughs> I don't understand, takes... Cardi and Ray to the Hampton Inn where Linda has a room. And in that room it's stocked with baby stuff. She's got a basin, she's got towels, she's got washcloths, she's got formula diapers, she's got baby clothes, she's got, you know, everything you need to take care of a baby in that room. Um, and he he's realized now I don't know what took him so long. He's realized that they've all been had. And he says something to Linda along the lines of, you know, why did you have to trick us like that? But that's how much she wanted a baby because she wanted to save the relationship with Jose Corona. Had she even talked to Jose, honestly, by this point? Like, had they been in She had called him. She... She had been she had been calling him and telling him she was pregnant, telling him she was getting ready to have the baby. She called him on, I think it was the fifteenth, and said she was going to have the baby. Right. The next day, and then on the sixteenth, she called him again and said the baby was due any minute, or something along those lines. Because you know we can do that to an exact science. Right. And so, um, oh, but it gets better. So, anyway, at 1.15, the Houston Police Department got the call about the home invasion and the kidnapping. And they were out in full force trying. They, they thought it was a kidnapping for ransom. So they set up at, at uh, I think, one of Joanna's cousins lived in the area, lived in the same complex. So they had set up in there because all the phones were ripped out at Joanna and Ramundo's apartment, so that if there were any ransom calls, they could they could deal with them. Well, of course, it's a kidnapping of a mother and an infant. Uh, it was big, big, big story. 
and Crime Stoppers offered a $5,000 reward. Very soon, like very early that Wednesday morning. And so Florence Myers, the note, yeah, Florence Myers notes all of the activity <coughs> in the uh, apartment complex and all the police officers. So she goes to one of the police officers and she mm-hmm. says, hey, yesterday evening I saw Linda Cardi. She used to live in that apartment or she lives in that apartment. And she right. was here in the parking lot with a car with a baby seat in the back. She told me she was about to have a baby, but she didn't look pregnant to me. I don't think right. she's pregnant. It was weird. And I'm sure that police officer was like, yeah, that, you're right. That is kind of weird. Well, on the 13th May, of May, on Sunday, Mother's Cardi had called in a complaint about two Hispanic men who pulled the gun on her in the apartment complex parking lot. Personally, I think that that was her plan to try and set Ramundo and Rigoberto up for an arrest that would get them out of the apartment. But, you know, nothing really came of it. Um. So, uh, so the police have her information, and they have a cell phone number, and they call her. And it's important to note that at this time, they are back at the Van Zandt house. She has picked up the Cavalier from her mother's. She arrived in a cab, picked up the Cavalier, and left again. She's at the Van Zandt house. She's got baby Ray. And she has her cell phone. She gets a call from the police. And okay. apparently realizes that the gig is up. Because they want her to they want to talk to her. She says it'll take her a half an hour to get to them. And then she gets somebody <coughs> <coughs> She gets somebody to drive her to meet the officers, accompanies them to the police station, and then uh, has left Ray, baby Ray, with Chris Robinson, who decides he's going to leave Ray in the Cavalier with the air conditioner running. Mm -hmm. Because I don't think he wants to be physically in possession of Ray <laughs> anymore. Right. So uh, so both Linda Cardi's cars, the daughter's Cavalier and the Sunfire rented for her by her daughter are at the Van Zant Street address. Um, she uh, goes to the police station. She tries to sell them the song and dance about having lent her car to a guy named Oscar, and she thinks he might have been involved in this kidnapping, but she didn't have anything to do with it. Uh And um, that she apparently had driven around looking for the car, and she thinks she knows where it is. And she gives him the address on Van Zandt Street. 
Okay. So they say, Linda, could you help us out? Could you take us to where the car is? And she says, of course I can do that because, you know, the DEA informant in her, she's just so helpful. Yeah, absolutely. So they get to the Van Van house. They find the Cavalier, and they find Baby Ray in the Cavalier, air conditioner running, because this is May 16th in Houston, Texas. Okay? It was probably damn hot. Right. And this is sometime in the afternoon, maybe even early evening. Um, so, I mean, it, it was Chris Robinson saved Ray by putting him in that car with the air conditioner running. Because if he hadn't been smart enough to turn the air conditioner, get the air conditioner running, Ray would have died within a few minutes. Uh-huh. And then right. in the Pontiac, in the trunk of the Pontiac, some fire, they find Joanna Rodriguez's body. Oh, Lord. So. Okay. And then they, they, they go to the Hampton Inn, they find all the baby stuff. And they also find a newspaper, a USA Today newspaper that had been delivered that morning and it has Chris Robinson's fingerprint on it. Okay. They, of course, find Cardi's fingerprints in both cars, but none of the other people's fingerprints. Chris Robinson admittedly did try to destroy evidence and get rid of evidence in the cars. And Uh he used some Lysol to try to disguise the smell of joy in his body. But they do manage to find one of his fingerprints in one of the vehicles. I'm not sure which one. I think probably the, possibly the Cavalier. And so um, he's arrested at the scene. I think Marvin Caston and Zebediah Coombs are also both arrested at the scene. Uh And when they're all brought into the police department, Robinson, Caston, um, and Coombs all tell police consistently, separate from one another, about Linda's whole plan to kidnap Joanna and get her baby. Right. And about the lick from uh, Ramundo and Joanna, who were not major drug dealers, who did not have any drugs of any kind in their apartment. In fact, the police, when they were initially questioning Ramundo and Roberto, they immediately ruled out drugs because the apartment didn't smell like drugs. And Ramundo and Roberto were answering questions. They were being forthright. They they weren't evasive. And they were answering all the officers' questions without any hesitation. Uh, and, and, in fact, Ramundo worked construction. Um, I don't know what Joanna may have done. She was probably on some kind of leave because right. of just having the baby. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I don't know what Rigoberto, Rigoberto likely worked construction as well. And he lived there with them or was staying with them at least. Right. Um, so... But they all told pretty consistent stories. And at times, Linda had told them she was pregnant, but then eventually 
it became about getting Joanna and her getting the baby and cutting the baby out and needing the baby. And at one point, Zebediah Coombs, when he came out and told everybody to get the hell away from his grandmother's house, Linda showed him baby Ray and said, look, I've got my baby. Wow. And so that is uh, that is pretty much how it developed. Now, Linda's story, of course, is diametrically opposed. <laughs> but yeah, also absolutely. It's, it's inconsistent, and it changes. Um, Linda, let me guess. Does Linda's story involve her not killing uh, Joanna, and uh, she was the hero, and she tried to stop everything? No. Linda was not oh. there. Linda lent the car to guys she did not know, mm-hmm. including one whose name is Oscar, and that's all she knows. Right. She wasn't there. Her cell phone was in the car. Because through Linda's cell phone, they found Gerald Anderson. (laughs) And I believe they found Josie Anderson, who weren't involved, who didn't participate in the lick on the 16th. Who had been initially recruited and had participated in the dry run. Right. Earlier. Um, so they find these other people, but Linda's story is she lent the car. She lent the cars, both cars, no explanation of why she would lend people two cars. Uh, Oscar was supposed to only have the car, the first car, 15 minutes, and then he was gone. And she drove around looking for him. And then somehow that she doesn't quite elaborate on, he ended up uh-huh. with the Cavalier too. Oh wow! Um, but again, the Cavalier. We know from her mother that between eight and nine, on the morning of the sixteenth, which is after the kidnapping, Linda arrived at her house in a taxi, got the Cavalier, and left. Mm-hmm. So, you know, her story doesn't make sense, and it's changed. Um, uh, A few years ago in 2010 and recently, she's claimed in interviews that they've gotten some tip about the, quote, real killer, a guy by the name of Aravisu, who was killed in October of 2001, with his wife and daughter in what was probably a drug hit. Now, the problem I have with that is that you loaned him your car. You've said in other interviews that you loaned him your car. Why would you need someone to give your attorneys a tip about his identity? So... um, And Linda Cardi is also one of those defendants and her advocates. Everyone is lying but Linda. Absolutely. Absolutely. Linda's the only one telling the truth. Yeah. And you see? you've, You've known me long enough to know that that is like waving a red cape in front of a bull. Because I'm not going to stop till I find the whole story. Right. 
So uh, now, of course, Chris Robinson, Carlos Williams, and Gerald Anderson were all facing capital murder because under Texas law of the parties, which we talked about a few weeks ago, it does not matter if they caused Joanna's death. They're guilty of capital murder. They can be charged with capital murder, and they can get the death penalty. Right. So, and and Chris Robinson uh, and Carlos Williams and Gerald Anderson, they knew they knew that they had been played. Were they? They were had they, gone in uh, there. It, was the prosecution seriously considering letting that play out? Or were they using that kind of, and I'm going to call it this, but I don't no. think it's called this, as like a negotiation tactic to be like, hey, well, I can charge you with death penalty, or you can give me this. I Well, I don't think, I think that they had gotten played. They knew they'd gotten played. And at least the, the impression I've gotten from the interviews I've seen, both the police interviews as well as, interviews and on death row with Chris Robinson, he really truly, he takes responsibility for the part he played Uh and he feels bad because he said at one point in the documentary on death row, he said, if I had killed Linda, that lady would have been alive. She'd be alive today. And Chris and Carlos and Gerald at Van Zandt, they all were telling Linda, let's just let her go. Give her her baby and let her go. And Linda's like, no, we can't let her go. She's seen all of our faces. We're all in it up to our necks. If I go down, you go down. And so I don't think that it took a lot for Chris Robinson to decide to take a plea, which he pled guilty to aggravated kidnapping, and he was sentenced to 45 years. So he did not get off lightly. Um, right. Uh, and, and he agreed to testify truthfully against Linda Cardi. Marvin Caston and Josie Anderson and Zebediah Coons were not present on May 16th. They could not be charged with anything related to this, even under law of parties, because they were involved in planning and a dry run, but they weren't involved in the actual execution of the plan. And so they couldn't be charged. I don't think Texas has accessory or or anything like that. I think law of parties kind of, you know, covers as much as it's going to cover. And um, now Marvin Caston and Zebediah Coons had some charges against them. And I believe that they, you know, they got some... um, Zebediah Coons had federal charges. Um, I think that his cooperation was reported to the feds, but he ended up getting a sentence that he was not happy with. He had also been had, he had pending charges because Chris Robinson had put a gun he found in the Cavalier 
in the drawer in Zeb's, Zeb's room. And so when police execute their search warrant and find a gun in Zeb's room, that's on Zeb. But Chris Robinson testified that he put the gun there. Zeb had no idea. And so they ended up dropping those charges against Zeb. Um, uh-huh. And Marvin Kasten had some kind of charges for something, but um, they didn't work out any deals prior to the testimony. And a lot of times those deals really are, people don't believe it, but they are. You have to testify truthfully. And right. if you don't testify truthfully, the deal doesn't happen. So, for example, we're, we'll, let's look at Jesse Miss Kelly. A quick example. When he gives his statement to the prosecutors after he's convicted, and they work out a deal and say he doesn't listen to his dad, and he doesn't listen to Stidham and Crow, and he decides to go ahead and make the deal and testify against Eccles and Baldwin. If he turns around and goes into the courtroom and gets on the stand and then says, I don't know, I don't remember, his deal goes away. Yeah, deal's off the table at that point. Uh-huh. It goes away. It's off the table back to where he was before he said he would make the deal. And so that's kind of the, the you know, where they were. And like I said, I think Chris Robinson felt some sense of remorse. And, you know, Linda Cardi would not be on death row if she had simply entered a plea. Right. If she'd been willing to enter a plea to first-degree murder, even capital murder. Right. The DA in Houston in Harris County would have taken death off the table. Okay. But she thought, I'm slick, and I'm going to beat these charges. And initially, her family hired a very well-respected Harris County, Texas defense attorney. Unfortunately, her family was not of unlimited means. And shortly before her trial was scheduled to start, probably about October of 2001, her family could no longer pay the attorney, and so Mm -hmm. he was not going to represent her anymore. And then she needed, she was indigent, so the court appointed uh, counsel for her. And because of death penalty, he appointed, the or, or she, I believe the judge was a woman, appointed two attorneys to represent her. Okay. So, so but yeah, Linda's story judge, was, don't know anything. Hmm? Do what? So the judge appoints these attorneys. Is, is there any sort of... Uh, work between and the reason why I'm asking this I don't think we've ever went over this is there any sort of uh, work between the outgoing attorney and the new attorneys as far as is he given the information that he already worked on with her to uh, in, the new attorneys in a normal case yes that would be um, and generally it's it's a, a relatively quick and smooth Transition 
However, Linda Cardi instructed her former attorney who could no longer represent her because he was not being paid and he deserved to be paid. She instructed him not to turn over any materials to her court-appointed attorneys. She told Mm -hmm. her court-appointed attorneys, I'm going to get this guy to represent me, and this guy's going to take over my case, and this guy's going to represent me, and I'll talk to them about my case when they uh, enroll. I'm not talking. And um, so she was not cooperative because she's not normal. There's a personality disorder. She, She has a grandiose personality. Um, the, okay. the, the claims about working for the DEA that, you know, she was so great and she claims to have gotten involved working for the DEA because she was either working in a hair salon and listening to other women talk or she was dating a Jamaican who was a big, big time drug dealer that she had no idea was a big time drug dealer. And I'm like, you know, dude, if he sleeps till two, he don't work. And he drives a Benz, and he's got wads of cash. He's a drug dealer. You kinda, know? Kinda, I mean, uh, something's obviously wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, so, why don't we do this? We're a little bit past. Can we take a quick break? Absolutely, and then we'll move absolutely. on to the trial. Absolutely. Let's go ahead and take a I quick I know you're break fascinated. Here. <laughs> oh yeah, no, it's it's pretty interesting how this woman is uh, getting away with a lot of stuff that just wow. <laughs> and then she told the tr- she told the story about how uh, she told the story about how they got the vehicle, and she just totally lent some person she never knew her uh, her car. Why? Exactly. Why? Yeah. And just well, why? you know, the other thing, if you notice, when she's telling the story to Houston PD. She's trying to throw them under the bus. Mm-hmm. Luckily, Chris Robinson got in the bus, backed that shit up, and ran over her ass. <laughs> and then probably pulled forward and ran over her again. Exactly. Yeah, he he did. He he ran that puppy back and forth a few times. Well, good, good, because she needed it. But uh, we're going to come right back with the uh, trial, the meat and taters, as we call it. Uh, You're listening to Clear and Convincing. We'll be right back right here on Talk Radio 49. Japan. 
Are you looking for the best deals for your vaping needs and accessories? Then check out the guys at Sub Ohm Vapors. With daily specials on a wide selection of mods and juices, they will surely become your one-stop shop. Ray and the guys at Sub Ohm Vapors located at 6929 JFK Boulevard, Suite C in North Little Rock, Arkansas, want to see you. Join them on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, but more importantly, visit the store or call 501-392-6487. Sub Ohm Vapors. Vape it like you built it. disorder um she's got a grandiose personality and you know she just the bottom line is she wants to save her own ass and get what she wants when she wants it yeah she's gonna do anything she has she needs to to get what she wants and right now or well i guess back then she wanted a baby so right what that's the situation you're, you know, kind of stuck in. But, you yeah. know, that's... The and now she wants that. sympathy. Right. <clears throat> now she wants sympathy. Woe yeah. Woe is me. I didn't do this. I wasn't there. I don't know this woman. I don't know these people. I had nothing to do with it. I'm on death row for something I didn't do, and the people who did it are not on death row. And it's so unfair, and the state of Texas failed me. Those are statements that she has made in multiple interviews. So, um, and we'll get into those. (laughs) So, well, the prosecution's case, in addition to testimony from Chris Robinson, who was an accomplice, and therefore under Texas law, his testimony is not sufficient by itself to uh, carry the burden of proof. There was testimony from Josie Anderson, Marvin Caston, 
and Zebediah Coons, who were not accomplices to the crime itself, but knew about it. And one of the things that all their statements were consistent about Linda's desire for a baby, desire for Joanna Rodriguez's baby, I mean, as I mentioned earlier, she told them Joanna and Jose had an affair, the baby was Jose's, and she was going to take it. Yes. So uh, they were consistent in that. But the prosecution was also able to bring in the other witnesses that Linda had told that she was pregnant and that she was due to have a baby any day. Because you can't suddenly show up with a baby without having been pregnant first. So, you know, even back to the beginning of May, she's setting this all up. And especially in the days right before the kidnapping, she's setting it up by telling as many people as she can that she's having a baby any day now. So that was um, the prosecution's case. And they brought in Jose Corona, who provided the motive, because this is an inexplicable crime. I don't think normal people could relate or understand, but should they brought him in to testify about the claims that she was pregnant and even saying she was pregnant then. And it's interesting. She called Jose Corona to come to the Houston PD. And at that point, he asked her if the baby had been born yet, and she said not yet. And he later found out she had never been pregnant. Right, right. I, wow. So, um, yeah, so it's uh, that. And uh, her attorney was able to get some of the baby things that were found in the hotel room and the fingerprint from Chris Robinson on the USA Today newspaper delivered that morning to the hotel room. While they were there, he was able to get all that suppressed. Um, but, I mean, they had – Linda Carty was the only connection between the apartment complex and Joanna Rodriguez and the house on Van Zandt where two vehicles, one belonging to Linda's daughter and the other one rented for Linda by her daughter, were found – Ray was found in her daughter's car, the Cavalier. Joanna Rodriguez's body was found in the trunk of the Sunfire that her daughter rented for her. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, okay. yes, that's circumstantial, but I would, I would tell you, uh, anybody who doesn't see those as strong circumstances is deluding themselves. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of a... Uh... That's kind of uh, something that you can't exactly be like, well, you see what had happened was. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's never there's never really, really been any evidence um, that Linda had lent the cars to anybody. She's seen the, the night of the 15th driving the Sunfire. She's seen the morning of the 16th picking up the Cavalier. So even without the accomplice testimony, uh, even calling Anderson, Caston, uh, and Coombs 
accomplices, you still have very powerful, strong circumstances that tie Linda Cardi and only Linda Cardi. And again, Chris Robinson, he comes up to the trunk and Joanna Rodriguez has a bag over her head and is dead. And Linda Cardi is the one who's standing right by the trunk. He didn't see her put the bag over her head. He maybe didn't see her put the tape around the bag. But he saw the immediate aftermath within seconds or minutes. And so, again, strong circumstances. Linda points out there's no, there were no fingerprints on the bag. There were no fingerprints on the duct tape. There were no fingerprints from anybody on any of the duct tape. There were no fingerprints in the apartment or on any of the materials used to bond Rigoberto and Ramundo. Fingerprints are not all over the place, as most people believe. My house was burglarized in 2005 in uh, Marion. The police found a single fingerprint on my dresser. One fingerprint. They broke a window. They came in through a window. They took DVDs. They took a DVD player. They took a CD player. And they found a single fingerprint in the dust on my dresser. If I'd have dusted my house, they probably wouldn't have found anything. (laughs) So not dusting is a good thing. Yeah, right, because you could wipe that fingerprint right away. Well, no, no, no. It's that the dust is actually the medium that the fingerprint was in. Oh, okay. Okay, I understand. Yeah. (laughs) So, now, the defense case, of course, was hampered severely by Linda's failure to cooperate with their attorney. Um. Attorneys, and at one point, just to get her to talk to them, they bribed her with a chocolate bar. Now, self-serving claims by herself and her daughter, she's deathly allergic to chocolate, can't eat it. So why would she take a candy bar? Well, cigarettes and candy bars in prison are like cash. Uh So if she couldn't eat that candy bar... She could use it to get something that she wanted from someone else. So, um, but she wouldn't cooperate. And she kept saying all these other attorneys were going to take her case. And she'll talk to them. But then that didn't happen. Another thing that, that, another problem is that when Linda was initially arrested, when the court advised her of her rights under the Vienna Convention, because she is, a citizen, a British citizen. When the judge advised her of these rights to obtain assistance from the British consulate in her defense, she lied to the court and said she was a U.S. citizen. Oh. Okay. Hmm. At the time she worked as an informant for the DEA, apparently she did tell them that she was born in St. Kitts making her a British citizen. However, citizenship status can change. Between 1991 or 1993, 
and 2001 in 10 years, you can become naturalized and become a U.S. citizen. Uh-huh. And once you're a U.S. citizen, you're not entitled to consular assistance, assistance from anybody, even if you were born and, and were a former citizen of that country. Because once you say you're, once you become a U.S. citizen, you're a U.S. citizen. So, and at one point, um, because she was born in St. Kitts, Guerno, Guerno, I don't know how to pronounce his name, um, her attorney, did ask her, is she a U.S. citizen? And she said, yes, she was born in the American Virgin Islands. Really? Yeah. Hmm. So, so now she, she's really can't claim anything but, you know, being an American, in my opinion. Well, no, no, she she was lying about her status. Right, but what I'm saying is, can she really claim, I mean, at this point, she's that, got to claim being. <laughs> How can you, I, well, like, like, no, she was lying about her status. She's never naturalized, but she lied about her status, I think. I suspect that Linda was trying to set everything up for an appeal. And Mm -hmm. so she lied to the courts about her status, but then she could complain, I'm a British citizen, and they are supposed to, there's a mandatory requirement that the Houston Police Department notify the British consulate. And they didn't. Right. And that my attorney should have sought help from the consulate, and he didn't. And she forgets the fact that she lied about her her status, her citizenship. Like I said, she told Guerno she was born in the American Virgin Islands, which Uh would make her a U.S. citizen. Um, Okay. You know, so, uh, yeah, but that it was hampered. Guerno did do as much as he could with Caston, uh, Caston Robinson, uh, Anderson, Josie Anderson, and Zebediah Coons. I mean, he made sure the jury knew they all had deals. Um, right. They all had some understanding with the state in exchange for their testimony. Uh-huh. And so um, I think Robinson had pled guilty And he was awaiting sentencing uh, Zebediah Coons okay. was awaiting sentencing On his federal charges uh, That he had pled guilty to And Marvin Caston right. I think had also pled guilty to something And was waiting sentencing So um, You know that's um uh, but he did, like I said, he did the best he could, and uh, it just, the like I said, the circumstances were so strong, and the only person they tied to the crime was Linda, not only based on her statements to multiple people, but just the circumstances. The vehicle were hers. 
The baby's found in one, the, the mother is found in the other, dead. Um, the woman lived in her apartment complex. She's seen in the apartment complex the evening before the the break-in. Right. So um, she was convicted of capital murder. He did, pre- the, the defense did another thing. He was successful in presenting enough to get a lesser included instruction for first degree murder. Right, right. Which I think might have only carried a life sentence. Okay. So But um I could be mistaken. There would be no death penalty in this case. Per, if if they had convicted her of first degree murder. Mm-hmm. Because I think in in Texas, capital murder is death eligible. First degree is not. Okay. The first degree is life without parole. Or, well, okay. in Texas is life, which is about thirty nine years. Because I don't so think Texas. I still don't think Texas has life without parole. I think okay. everybody in Texas has a chance at parole. Um, okay. And then they did the punishment phase. Um, and and another thing, uh, Linda Cardi's attorneys had to subpoena and then issue a writ of attachment for her daughter because her daughter did not want to cooperate and testify. Mm-hmm. Um, they had her mother testify and one of her sisters testify. Right. Um but, you know, part of the thing, what people don't understand, people think in a death penalty case, if there's anything, if a bad childhood, abuse, uh, low IQ, not necessarily uh, mental retardation, but if, if, you're, if you're an 80 IQ and you're just not very bright, parents drank, if your parents abused you, any of that stuff, takes death penalty off the table. And that's not right. necessarily true. Um, when the when the jury looks at whether to sentence life or death, they're looking at not only those mitigators that may explain why you did what you did, but they're also looking at the crime you committed. And in this case, they took she took a mother forcibly removed her from her home where she had been lying, sleeping in bed with her husband and her newborn son, forcibly took her away, put her in the trunk of a car, had her bound, and then stood there holding her baby in front of her Mm -hmm. and eventually put a plastic bag over her head and suffocated her. Wow. Um, you know, when you look at that, I, I don't think that any amount of good works or good life is going to redeem that person. And in Linda Cardi's case, another thing is that her, you know, excellent background and her religious upbringing and her moral upbringing in her school on St. Kitts and with her family 
did not mm-hmm. explain the disconnect of the drug-dealing woman who stole a vehicle posing as an FBI agent and then got caught with 50 pounds of marijuana after trying to run over a cop. Right. But none of that, there's like a disconnect. I, I was watching another documentary, and they're talking about, you know, the school taught us the, to do the right thing and to be moral people and to be kind and to be generous and to be compassionate. And I'm like, it didn't take with Linda Cardi. And then they talked about family and, and church. And, you know, the whole family goes to church and it's very strong religious upbringing. Well, that didn't take with Linda Cardi either. Yeah, absolutely not. So uh, the jury sentenced her to death. Yeah. The jury sentenced her to death. And, of course, the direct appeal is automatic. And the primary issue that she raised on direct appeal was the testimony was all from accomplices, and so it wasn't sufficient to prove her guilt. Right. And basically, the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals outlined the factors that, uh, without any accomplice testimony, linked Linda Cardi to the crime. Mm-hmm. Living in the same apartment complex as the victim. Telling people that she was pregnant. Having all those baby things. That, you know, one car belonged to her daughter and the other one was rented for her by her daughter. Mm-hmm. The phone calls that led police to Gerald Anderson. Right. All of those things without any accomplice testimony. They, you know, that proves her guilt, connects her to the crime. I would agree. So uh, her her conviction and sentence were affirmed. And then her a, a, a post-conviction attorney was appointed for her, and he filed an initial writ. And I'm not sure exactly what the grounds or what the claims were. In 2004... An organization called Reprieve uh, that was formed in the UK uh, either retained the services of Baker Botts or simply went to Baker Botts and said, We have a British national on death row in Texas. Go get it. Mm-hmm. And attorneys from Baker Botts came in, but they asked the court for an extension of time to add additional claims. And by the time they got involved, the time to amend that first writ had long passed. Right. And so the court denied that request. And then they came to an agreement with the court and the uh, the state that, that they would get time to familiarize themselves with the case and maybe do some investigation but not certainly not to continue filing pleadings that raise additional claims that weren't raised in the initial application. And under Texas 
uh, writ, habeas writ law, you only get one shot absent some extraordinary circumstances. Uh So your first writ, you have to have everything, every constitutional violation that occurred during your trial. Right. You cannot... You cannot say, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna run, I'm gonna run these five claims, and then if they deny those five claims, I've got five more, and I'll do another writ. Because at one time, that is what defense firms were doing, and we've seen that right. in the Rodney Reed case. You know, they pursue, they pursue a writ on some issues, and then while that one's pending, they file another writ with all new issues that they, quote, just discovered. Mm-hmm. And then when they're not successful on either of those, they file another writ with allegedly newly discovered evidence. Um, so it's it's uh, basically... Uh, but one of the things that was done either by the, the original writ attorney or Baker Boss attorneys, I'm not quite sure, is that they prepared responses to the state's answer which raised additional claims. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, that's not the vehicle in which to raise those additional claims. Uh, one of the claims, one of the many claims they raised was ineffective assistance of counsel. Uh, they complained that he didn't get consular assistance. He didn't spend enough time with Linda Cardi. Uh, he didn't present enough mitigation evidence. He didn't go to St. Kitts and talk to people who hadn't seen Linda in 20 years. Um, you know, he didn't do all these things, and uh, that was denied. Uh, one of the things that they they mentioned was that all the claims about the consular assistance, that her lying about her status and claiming to be a U.S. citizen and she actually mm-hmm. signed a document in court claiming to be a U.S. citizen means that she can't now turn around and say, I'm a British citizen, you should have done this. Right. Absolutely not. And, you know, I found the State Department handbook that the U.S. State Department gives, you know, to police and DAs and everything that outlines who you have to contact, you know, who... You have to, you know, that what countries where if they're a citizen of a certain country, they have to say they want help. You don't have to do anything. If they don't say they want help, it's on them. There are certain countries in the United Kingdom is one of them where there is a mandatory thing. But, I mean, uh-huh. it, it goes both ways. If I'm arrested in England or Scotland or Wales or Ireland, Northern Ireland, for a crime, they have to contact the U.S. consulate. Right. Okay. But if I tell them when I'm arrested that I'm a British citizen, then how are they going to know? And and you know it's it's kind of the thing. Say if they say they're Ameri- if they say they're a U.S. citizen, then you don't have to do anything. Um, if they're if they have dual citizenship, like. Germans can hold dual U.S. and German citizenship. It's kind of limited. Uh-huh. Um, 
there are only, I think, uh, I think Germany is the only country I'm aware of where you can actually have dual citizenship. Any other country, if you naturalize, you have to give up your old citizenship. Okay. And you're a U.S. citizen, period. Um, so, uh, so that, that was not, and then there was a complaint that neither the prosecutor nor the defense attorney told Jose Corona that as Linda Cardi's common law husband, he did not have to testify. Right. Um, but the court, after examining, they found that there just, there wasn't enough evidence to really show that the judge would have allowed Jose Corona to invoke marital privilege. Right. And Linda Cardi in Texas cannot invoke privilege for her spouse. Mm -hmm. Um, In most states, if you're on trial, if you and I were married and you're on trial for a crime, and I want to testify against you, you can invoke the privilege and keep me from testifying. Okay. Or severely limit what I can testify to. There are some limitations. Um, like I can testify hmm. to things that I observed, but I can't testify to anything that you may have said to me. Okay. But in um, Texas, if a spouse is on trial, only the testifying spouse can invoke the privilege. Okay. And as you know from our prior discussions, you and I commit a crime together. I'm throwing your ass under the bus. Yeah, married absolutely. or not. <laughs> so I will testify against anybody in a heartbeat. Um, <laughs> So uh, her state, her first writ was denied, and then Uh they went into federal court, and um, in the federal court, what they did was they tried to raise everything, and the federal court said, whoa, wait a second, Um, you, uh, you didn't really, you know, you didn't bring some of these claims before the state court. For the, in order for the state court to rectify the problem, and so they're okay. defaulted, which means the federal court's not going to look at them. Um, the federal court decision, it was September 30th of 2008. It is 142 pages, uh-huh. and it is an amazing analysis of the claims because even some of the claims that were procedurally defaulted, the district court went ahead and and analyzed them anyway and said this is why they don't have any merit. And one of the many things that the district court found um, that she couldn't really complain about ineffective assistance because she wasn't cooperative with the attorney. Right. And she didn't tell the attorney about witnesses. She didn't tell the attorney what her defenses were. I mean, the only thing he really had is that she said she didn't do anything. But she didn't tell him, you know, go talk to Joe Blow because he knows I didn't have anything to do with it. Uh, Go talk to this person because I was with them at 1 o'clock in the morning. I was not sitting in that parking lot. 
you know, go talk to this person who saw me give them the car. Of course, one of the reasons that Linda didn't do that, because she didn't really have any of that. Right. And I think she knew she didn't have any of that. Mm-hmm. Because aside from her daughter, who was away in Florida at the time, I don't think Linda had anybody else in her life that was really willing to enable her. And um, so the district court ended up denying everything in the, you know, on the Vienna Convention consular assistance claims. You know, basically, she told the court when she was advised of those rights, she didn't invoke them, and she told the court she was a U.S. citizen. She can't now turn around and complain because nobody did what they were supposed to do because she didn't give them the information that they needed in order to do what they needed to do. Right. And that's on her. It's not on anybody else. Um, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeal affirmed the district court and the U.S. Supreme Court in 2010 declined her writ seeking review of the uh-huh. federal habeas claim. And then she filed in 2014. And it's really strange because I seem to recall her having an execution date, but I can't find anything about when it was. And there's nothing on the the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals website with a stay or anything like that. So I may be mistaken. It may have been just media hype when her case was in federal post-conviction. That uh, uh, because once and once the U.S. Supreme Court denied the writ, the state could have sought Harris County could have sought a, a warrant for her execution in 2010. Yeah, I was about to. Say, I don't know why they didn't. Um, the Supreme Court's the last well, ditch effort. The Hail Mary, ain't it? <clears throat> pretty much. Um, but one of the things I think is a problem is that Harris County gets a lot of criticism. Because it does have the most people on death row of any county in Texas. However, when you look at Houston is a major metropolitan, I think the largest metropolitan area in Texas. Is it bigger than Dallas? I think it's slightly bigger than Dallas. Okay. You know, the Dallas area, Dallas-Fort Worth, that's two counties. That's Dallas and Tarrant. True. So in Houston, and uh, if you look at a a map of the counties, I think Harris County is ginormous. Uh And it's a major metropolitan area. There's a lot of drug problems. There's a lot of crime, armed robberies. Drive-by shootings, gangs, drug shootings, and all of those are capital eligible. Right. And so, you know, Harris County, unfortunately, because of the makeup of the population and maybe the lawlessness of a great deal of that population, despite their best efforts, they have the most capital murders. Well, yeah, I mean, you got the, uh, you'd think per capita, <clears throat> they would because they're the biggest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
<clears throat> and I, you know, I think there've also been some shakeups in the DA's office in Harris County, and they've gotten a lot of bad press. So maybe, you know, they're not as um, anxious to seek a warrant for execution at the first possible moment. Right. Um, they want to let but things in, play out. Yeah. In 2014, uh, Cardi filed a successive writ because she had been able to obtain some affidavits from Jose Corona and, or she may have obtained affidavits from Jose Corona and Charlie Mathis, her former DA handler, earlier, but she'd obtained additional affidavits. Mm-hmm. And she'd also managed to obtain affidavits from Robinson, Coombs, Caston, and Anderson claiming that the DAs uh, forced them to testify falsely uh-huh. at her trial. And they claim Brady violations because some, uh, not all statements were produced to the defense. And then they Uh raised a cumulative error complaint saying, look, even though the errors weren't sufficient on their own to warrant a new trial, there are so many errors that she should get a new trial. Right. And um, there were a lot of claims made, but the uh, Court of Criminal Appeals, because it was a successive writ, only remanded uh, limited claims to the trial court to review. So there was a hearing, and witnesses testified. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, especially when you got to Christopher Robinson and Marvin Caston, their testimony and their affidavits or declarations didn't exactly agree with each other. Right. Uh, Robinson's uh, declaration or affidavit said, you know, Connie Goodhart told me to say that I saw her in the trunk when I didn't. Connie uh, Connie Spence told me to say that I saw her bathe the baby when I didn't. Connie right. Spence told me to say all kinds of stuff that I didn't even see. And when Chris Robinson gets up on the stand, and of course on directive. He, you know, supports all that. Um, I, I think somebody had offered to help him get his ass out of the crack. Mm-hmm. Because <clears throat> 45 years is a long time. Yeah. And, um, uh, but when he was being cross-examined, one of the things they did is they showed one of his interrogations where all the things he's claiming Connie Spence made him say at trial – he told the police officer before Connie Spence ever talked to him. Oh. And so, and then he, you know, there was one question that was asked about one of the statements in the in the declaration or affidavit, and he said, well, I think that's a little stretched, meaning the statement in the affidavit. And then he ended up in the hearing on cross-examination saying, 
his testimony at trial was truthful, and nobody made him say anything that wasn't true. Right. So that one went over like a lead balloon. And uh, the same thing happened with uh, Marvin Kasten and, and Zebediah Coombs because, you know, while their declarations were very helpful for Linda Cardi, um, their testimony just wasn't. And yeah. I think another problem, and we saw this in the West Memphis 3 case, a lot of times what happens is that attorneys prepare a declaration or affidavit to say what they need it to say. Right. Unfortunately, it's not necessarily what the witness said or how the witness would say it. And so sometimes you get witnesses who they'll sign whatever the attorney puts in front of them, but they don't read it. And if there's anything wrong with it, they don't say anything. But then then when they get sworn under oath in a courtroom, sitting next to a judge in a black robe, they maybe have some second thoughts. Right. And then they, a lot of times, will say, well, that's, I, that's, not, what I, that's not what I said. That's not what happened. That's not how it happened. Yeah, and that's so, how it went. Um, one of the things, I've seen it happen in, in civil cases a few times during my long career. And I've seen it happen in criminal cases that I've researched. Uh, For example, a a witness who signed a a declaration in the West Memphis Street case is making all these statements on, on social media. And I said, well, wait, your declaration says A, B, and C, and now you're saying it's D, E, and F. And the response that I got from that person was, the attorney wrote that. I didn't even read it. I just signed it because he told me to. Mm-hmm. I'm like, damn, I wish there would have been a hearing because when you, when you did that in the hearing, their case would have gone right down the toilet. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but uh, the the trial court, after you know analyzing all the testimony and the trial testimony, the declarations, affidavits, and then the hearing testimony, he denied. He recommended that relief be denied. And the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals in February, I believe, um, affirmed the denial with a written opinion, which was a, 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 a you know another interesting analysis. And then um, she filed a writ with the U.S. Supreme Court, and that was just denied uh, earlier this month. So second request for review by the U.S. Supreme Court denied. Uh, That was reviewing the state court uh, successive writ. So in theory, uh, the Harris County could ask, for an execution date. But okay. I, I don't know that they necessarily will. And interviews after the denial of the writ with the attorney from Baker Botts, who's handling the case, he has implied or hinted that they are going to be filing more writs. 
I don't know on what. Okay. Although, another thing that I've noticed with defense attorneys in capital defense, they want to keep trying to relitigate something that they haven't succeeded in before. And there's a total ignorance of the reasons they didn't succeed before. Well, yeah. You know, and it's like they, they think if they say it enough, if they keep saying she's innocent, she's innocent, she's innocent, the system didn't work, she shouldn't be on death row, she didn't commit this crime, they, you know, her attorney was ineffective. They they think if they keep repeating it, it's somehow going to change her circumstances. And I right. just don't see that happening because at the at the bottom you've got a person who did not tell the truth in a lot of areas in her life for nearly 20 years before she ever ended up in a Harris County courtroom. Right, absolutely. I completely agree. And, with you know, statement. when you're dealing with someone like that, you're, you know, you've got a very hard road to hoe. Uh, one of her other complaints about her attorney is she claims that she wanted to testify. And her attorney said, if you testify, I'll withdraw. And the judge told her, if you testify, I'll let him withdraw. Well, that's not how it works, and it's and it's an exchange that's on the record. So, you know, I don't have the trial transcript, but I'll tell you, I have no doubt of, in my mind that that is not what happened. Right. Are you there? Okay. But, yeah, I'm here. Um, Can you hear me? But, you know, Linda Cardi, I wish he'd let her testify, but that would have sunk her case. Right. The only good it would have done is that the jury could not sentence her to more than death. Because if she had tried to get up there and testify about loaning the car to Oscar, oh, and I forgot, and and you love these, and I forgot to mention it. While she was in jail, she Mm -hmm. got another inmate to copy a letter that she had written from Oscar saying that she was being set up by Chris and Zeb because she was black and because she was an informant for the DEA. Now, Chris Robinson, I know he's black because I've seen him. So I don't see why Chris would be against her because she was black too. Zebediah Coombs is his brother or his Mm half-brother. So I'm kind of guessing his race is probably black or African-American as well. So, again, I don't see why they would have a a bias against her because she's the same race. Um, And uh, and the whole DEA informant thing. Uh, Right. Luckily, authorities found out about that letter because I know you love those letters people write and and trying to pin the crime on somebody else, and they get caught. I I know that makes your day. Absolutely hilarious. And I apologize for not telling you about it earlier in the in the investigation. <laughs> that is hilarious that that happened. Yep. Oh, my God. Yep. And I believe she threatened the inmate <laughs> that she'd gotten to try and try to get to help her. 
uh, because the inmate obviously, you know, apparently got the letter and said, here, look what Linda Carney just wrote. And so it ended up being used against her. Yeah. That's just, that's just special. Just really (laughs) special. All right. Well, I think that is. I I think we've covered Linda Cardi. Okay. Okay. To, well, I mean, we should keep everybody updated on this. You know, especially should something monumental happen, like she is. Uh, <clears throat> that we anything like that. Yeah, Harris County's records are online, mm-hmm. and so. I will be able to periodically check them and see if any anything's been filed by Harris County DA. Uh, the DA now is Kim Ogg, who's a Democrat. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how she so feels probably, about capital punishment. We're probably, uh, you know, I don't know. For a while. Uh, yeah, I I don't know. Um, like I said, I don't know what her stance is on capital punishment. And a lot of times these DAs, especially in Texas, if you don't believe in capital punishment and you express that anytime, you're going to be out on your ass. Right. Because, you know, Texans believe that certain murders are ones that the, the punishment is death. Right. And it's a punishment. And anybody who believes that um, family members of victims think that their loved one is going to be miraculously brought back to life if the killer is executed, anybody who represents that as being something they believe, they're crazy. They're deluding themselves. Yeah. People know their loved one is not ever going to come back. But some people, while some people don't, and it can be very difficult and very confusing when the killer of their loved one is is finally executed, for some it is comfort. It is a catharsis. It is a way of dealing and moving on. Because Mm -hmm. while they're on death row and they're appealing and the media is saying they're innocent all the time, you can't rest and you worry that they're going to get they're going to walk out of prison and they're going to hurt you or they're going to hurt someone else. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So, but yeah, I will I will keep an eye on it and if uh if a request for a an execution date is filed, I will definitely uh I will definitely mention that on the next show after it happens. Okay. Sounds good. Well, let's wrap things up and get on out of here, Lisa. <laughs> All <laughs> right. Thank you for listening to Clear and Convincing with Lisa O'Brien and Michael Carnahan. If you like our show and want to know more, you can find us on Facebook. Go to our blog at clearandconvincingpodcast.wordpress.com or follow me on Twitter at O'BrienLN. Join us next week for Clear and Convincing, Episode 32, State of Wisconsin versus Stephen Avery. We'll talk about the 1985 attempted rape and murder case in Manawak County that led to Avery spending 18 years in prison. He was exonerated by DNA evidence in 2003. 
will be joined by Michael Griesbach, a former Manawak County prosecutor and the author of The Innocent Killer, A True Story of a Wrongful Conviction and Its Astonishing Aftermath, and Indefensible, The Missing Truth About Stephen Avery, Teresa Hallback, and Making a Murderer. On December 11, 2018, we'll talk about the case against Stephen Avery and then Brendan Dassey for the murder of Teresa Hallback on October 31, 2005. We'll be joined for that show by Kenneth Kratz, the former Calumet County District Attorney who tried the cases against Avery and Dassey and is the author of Avery, a book about the Stephen Avery, Brendan Dassey case. Uh, We look forward to seeing you, talking to you next week. Have a great weekend, a great rest of your week, and stay safe. Night.